Welcome to the National Gallery of Art Sidney J. Friedberg Lecture on Italian Art. This endowed series, named after the great scholar of Italian art Sidney J. Friedberg, features presentations on Italian subjects from antiquity to the modern era. In December of 1547, when Titian left Venice for Augsburg to meet the imperial court, he was undoubtedly the foremost painter of the Venetian art scene. When he returned a year later, he found the city enamored of the talent of Jacopo Tintoretto, a painter almost 30 years his junior. Tintoretto's Miracle of the Slave, painted for the Scuolo Grande di San Marco, was receiving unanimous praise from an enthusiastic Venetian public, including members of Titian's own inner circle, such as Pietro Aretino. In this lecture, recorded on November 9, 2014, Miguel Falamir analyzes Titian's reaction to Tintoretto's challenge, which was unexpected on two fronts. First, because the two painters had previously enjoyed a cordial relationship, and second, because the miracle of the slave represented a considerable improvement in the quality of Tintoretto's painting. Ultimately, the miracle of the slave forced Titian, then in his 60s, to update his style in order to compete with a younger generation of artists, something that he was not always able to do successfully. This is the 18th annual lecture offered by the National Gallery of Art in this endowed series, named after Sidney J. Friedberg, 1914-1997, the great specialist of Italian art, and presented in the centennial year of his birth. It is to me very satisfying to return to the National Gallery of Art, where I spent two wonderful years as Andrew Mellon Professor in Casba in 2008. And of course, I am especially pleased to return to deliver the Sidney Friedberg Lecture for 2014. It is an honor and a privilege. Like many of my generation, my first contact with Sidney Friedberg was through his magnificent survey of Italian painting of the 16th century, painted in Italy 1500 to 1600. The first time I read that survey on November 1986, and you, as you can see in the screen, it was in the Spanish translation, and this impeded me from enjoying his English. Years later, I pick up a copy in English, and I read the passage dedicated to Titian's San Margaret in the Museo del Prado. That is when I decided to sell for the Spanish edition definitely. <laughs> Friedberg wrote of San Margaret, she seems the image of a tragic goddess of immensurable dignity rather than a Christian saint. Her figure signs in a landscape where, though it is night, nothing rests, end quote. Sentences like these encapsulate what I think is the greatest achievement of this wonderful book. Besides an intelligent and ordered presentation of information, it truly transmits emotion in the contemplation of works of art. The Penguin Yale University volume had a diachronic structure and dealt with the evolution of Italian painting in the 16th century. But in another important book, circa 1600, a revolution of a style in Italian painting, Friedberg offered a synchronic approach to a very precise moment in the history of Italian painting, focused only on a few figures, Caravaggio and the Caracci. My decision to situate today's talk in 1548 and analyze two artists, Tizian and Tintoretto, is my way to, of paying a modest tribute to Friedberg's legacy. But before we come to 1548, and in order to be able to understand what happened in Venice that year, it is necessary to go back and reconsider two common places of the historiography. The first is about the relationship of Charles V to Titian, and the second, 
about the relationship between Titian and Tintoretto. Regarding the former, every monographic study on Titian tells us that after an unfruitful encounter with Charles V in 1529, they met again in 1532-33, in and it was then that a true painter-patron relationship was forged. In 1533, Charles bestowed a title of nobility on Titian and granted him the exclusive right to make his portrait in emulation of the relationship of Alexander the Great to Apelles, thus making him his court painter. However, this was a propagandistic gesture without immediate artistic consequences. In the following 10 years, Charles commissioned only one portrait from his Apelles, an image of his late wife. Charles's lack of interest must have been frustrating for Titian. For this reason, 1547 must have been a tremendously important moment for Titian, for it was then that finally Charles' call came to Asbur. In Venice, the rumor spread that Titian was going to settle permanently at the court. In January 1548, Pietro Retino wrote a letter to Antoine Perrenaud the Grand Bell, Bishop of Arras, which has been mostly overlooked by scholars. In it, Aretino noted the overall feeling of orphanhood that Venetians were experiencing after Titian's departure, and I quote, it has been a beautiful testimony of virtue to see that as soon as it was known that the divine painter had been called away, people rushed to be a part of his art, paintings, and anything that was to be found in his house were quickly bought up at the highest prices, for people are sure that his majesty will welcome his appellates in such a way that never again will he take up his brass for any other but he, end quote. Even if Pietro Aretino, Titian's closest friend and greatest apologist, was known for his hyperbole, it seems that on this occasion he was reflecting a general sentiment in Venice the conviction that Titian will never return to the city. The initial relationship between Titian and Tintoretto also needs to be reconsidered. In 1642, Carlo Ridolfi described a brief, a complicated apprentice <coughs> of Tintoretto under Titian, noting that Titian was so jealous of Tintoretto's talent that he expelled him from his workshop. This is highly unlikely, and it makes more sense that Ridolfi fabricated the anecdote in order to find an explanation and a point of origin for the much later public rivalry that existed between the two painters, especially after 1548. As I have suggested elsewhere, the relationship of the two painters before 1548 was actually quite different, and there are indications that they were, if not friends, at least quite collegial. The relationship of Tintoretto to Titian was not so much of an artistic nature. Although Tintoretto's portraits of the 1520s, such as this of Niccolò Doria of 1545, reveal a certain admiration and emulation of Titian. Leaving aside this exception, however, it seems that the nature of the relationship was much more social or even personal, they share numerous friends in the artistic and intellectual circles of Venice, such as Jacopo Sansovino, Paolo Pino, Francesco Marcolini, 
and the most important one for us, the aforementioned Pietro Aretino. One of the things that Tintoretto learned from Titian was the importance of having intellectual friends who could then aid in one's social promotion. In fact, he imitated Titian's way of cultivating these fruitful ties by portraying these friends and giving them paintings by his hand. For Aretino, he painted two canvases in January, February 1545, one of which, Apollo and Marcias, survives. Aretino responded with one of his famous letters. In it, he praised Tintoretto's precociousness and his rapid way of painting, and I quote, often one finds that haste and imperfection go together, so that is a special pleasure to find speed in execution accompanied by excellence, end quote. But let's get back to Titian and his stay in Oswald, where finally all the Venetian master's expectations were fulfilled. Charles saw him the interest and respect that before he had denied the painter, and Titian responded with one of the masterpieces of the history of portraiture. In addition, he came, in, came into contact with other members of the court and the imperial family, especially Mary of Hungary, who would be very benef beneficial to him for years to come as a source of commissions. The stay in Augsburg was drawn out. It began in December 1547, and he didn't return to Venice until November of 1548. When he arrived, he found the city completely seduced by Jacopo Stintoretto's miracle of the slave. His old friend, Pietro Aretino, had become its biggest spokesperson. In April of that year, he had written Tintoretto and congratulated him for his public success. Here you have part of his very long letter. Aretino spared no praise and called his talent superb, praising both his handling of drawing and color, as well as his capacity to move the spectator. He was especially praising of the foreshortening of the new slave. Aretino's letter constitutes a sincere tribute to the talent of Tintoretto, and his assertions are corroborated by other contemporary testimonies. Around that same time, Aretino wrote the architect and sculptor Jacopo Sansovino, who was also best friends with Titian, announcing that Tintoretto was about to become the foremost painter in Venice, that he, and I quote, is near to the winning post, end quote. At the same time, Aretino's letter reflects his desire to remain the major art aesthetic judge of Venice's artistic scene after Titian's departure. As Gentili has noted, coinciding with Titian's absence, Aretino courted other artists in order to maintain his privileged status in the, artistic, in the Venetian artistic milieu, <laughs> writing adulating letters to the sculptor Benedetto Martini and the painters Lorenzo Lotto, Gianpaolo Pazze, Andrea Schiavone, and Bonifazio da Pitati. So, how did Titian react to this new situation upon his return? His first response to the miracle of the slave must have been surprised, because when he left the city a year earlier, it was difficult to imagine that Tintoretto's art could develop in this direction and emerge with such strength. Tintoretto, like El Greco, whose centenary is being celebrated this year, was not a fast learner. On his early works as an, as an independent master, 
and his early works as an independent master are of limited quality. If we examine the portrait of Niccolo Doria or the Apollo and Marcias, both from 1545, we can find no indication of the artist who would be capable of rebelling Titian only three years later. Titian must have had this same feeling about Tintoretto before he left Venice, since which partly, partly explained, explains why there is no testimony of any kind of animosity or tension between them before 1548, nor after Titian returned from his earlier trip to Rome in 1546. The reality is that with this painting in 1548, Tintoretto made an spectacular leap in quality, which can be traced through, through four works made before the miracle of the slave, but after the Apollo of Marcias, that is, between 1545 and 1548. Venus, Vulcan, and Mars, the washing of the feet, Christ and the woman taken in adultery, and a stare before Asuerus. It is important to remember that we are seeing the development of a painter who was already active in 1538 and who forged his mature style mostly in an autodidactic way. Through these four examples, we see Tintoretto gaining confidence and ability in the handling of anatomy and space. In the first work, Venus, Vulcan, and Mars, we find him quite overly working on these two aspects of anatomical perfection and a clear handling of perspective. In contrast to his earlier horizontal compositions, such as the Apollo and Marcias, here he formulates one of the most distinctive elements of his mature style, the use of a high horizon line and the, di the diagonal positioning of the figures, two elements which, when combined, endow his compositions with depth and dynamism. The following works, The Washing of the Feet and The Christ and, and the Woman Taken in Adultery, further rehearse these aspects, now treated with greater mastery and a greater interest and ability in individualizing the futures of each figure. At the same time, however, these works betray certain over-didacticism in the spatial configuration, the use of, an architectural, of the architectural elements and the floor to organize the perspective is a bit too emphatic and obvious. In addition, the figures fall to completely interact with each other. But in a slightly later painting, Stare before Asuerus, he has worked through these limitations and now we see a greater degree of complexity. The perspective is constructed in a more subtle way and the figures interact in a more fluid manner. The result is a, paint, is a narrative painting with a greater emotional charge. All these works, especially the latter, prefigure the miracle of the slave, but it is not clear that Titian saw them before he left Venice, which again is why he probably was not prepared for the miracle of the slave. A monumental masterpiece measuring 164 by 214 inches, a work of such maturity that it heralded a new direction for Venetian painting altogether. To contemplate the new work, Titian only had to take a short walk from his home in Virigrande. Tintoretto had painted it for the Scuola Grande di San Marco, one of the principal charitable institutions in Venice located 
in the Campo de Santi Apostoli. The painting hung in the hall of the Capitulo Generale, a large room which was lit naturally by windows on two of its walls. On the tribune wall, where the miracle hung between two windows, and on the northwest wall, which faced the canal. <clears throat> Tintoretto handled the light effects of the room magnificently. He balanced the light from the windows on either side of his painting by using the canvas as a kind of third window, casting the upper part and lateral margins in shadow and allowing the central area to emerge fully illuminated. He also boldly prolonged the light from the side so that during the hours of sunset, which was when the room would be used for the confraternity's meeting, it merged with that of the canvas. And on the canvas, he offered an spectacle, which is how Aretino described it, a theatrical and cosmopolitan spectacle with figures attired in varied ways and dramatically distributed in a very effective semicircle around the two central diagonal figures, the slave in the light and the saint above in the saddle. This is the slave. This is the saint. As Paluchini noted many years ago, the miracle sums up everything that Tintoretto had seen up to this point. And although that was a lot of things and quite varied, he managed to fuse them all together harmoniously. There are, as is well known, quotations from Pordenone, Michelangelo, Titian, and Serlio in the architecture. And the composition itself has been compared to Raphael, the blending of Alimas, as well as the frontispiece of Jan Stefan von Kalkar for Andrea Vesalius, the Humana Corpore Fabrica, published in Basel in 1543. But the most troubling aspect of the painting for Titian must have been something else. Following Titian's Roman sojourn in 1545-46, his artistic rivalry with Michelangelo reached its peak. Titian was accustomed to see young artists arrive in Venice with a more or less Michelangelesque vocabulary, such as Pordenone and Vasari, and he himself had been influenced by Buonarroti since the 1520s. But Tintoretto's miracle of the slave responded to Michelangelo in a different way. First, Tintoretto was a Venetian, and while the painting had its own share of direct citations from Michelangelo, it reached beyond them to offer an ambitious synthesis of Florentine diseño and the Venetian tradition of colore. The first viewer who seems to have appreciated Tintoretto's novel approach was Aretino. He underscored the value of Tintoretto's colorism, but was especially enthusiastic about his handling of diseño. Significantly, Aretino never loaded diseño in Titian's work, Concentrating, concentrating instead on, praise, on praising his color and the liveliness of his compositions. In that same year, 1548, Paolo Pino published a brief treatise in Venice where he postulated as pictorial idea the union of Michelangelesque diseño and Tizianesque colorito in the following words, and I quote, and what if Tizian and Michelangelo were fused in one body? in which the design of Michelangelo was joined with the color of Titian, then we would have divine painting, end quote. 
What Pino was suggesting and Tintoretto was painting was, in fact, a pictorial and aesthetic ideal that surpassed both Michelangelo and Titian as individuals. Neither one of them incarnate perfect painting because it needed to be a combination of both. So, upon his return from Augsburg to Venice, and just as his, as his prestige was at its highest in the rest of Europe, Titian was no longer considered on the avant-garde and had been replaced by Tintoretto. The differences between Titian and Tintoretto, which undoubtedly were always there, became more marked after 1548. But this was more due to differences in age and consequently also of social position than the result of radical incompatible temperaments or personalities. In 1548, Toretto was 29 or 30 years old, and we know what he looked like thanks to the magnificent self-portrait in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, dated one or two years earlier. Tintoretto gazes intently at the spectator, emphasizing the intellectual dimension of his work instead of its manual aspect, as well as his strong individuality. There is a self-portrait of Titian dated more or less to the same years in Berlin. It does not show the painter with any tools of his profession either. However, it does make a rather overstatement about the novel of the artist through the inclusion of the golden chain that identifies him as Count Palatino. Titian's gaze does not meet the spectator's eyes and seems to be more self-aware of his place in history. Tintoretto, almost 30 years his younger, does not hide his more humble social origins, and this is also evident in the way both painters sign. Tintoretto signed the miracle of the slave Jacopo Tentor, Jacopo the Dyer, while Titian, the king of painting, used to sign Titianus Eques, Titian the Gentleman. In the rest of this talk, I would like to analyze Titian's response to Tintoretto's formidable challenge in three arenas, personal, theoretical, and the purely artistic. In terms of personal impact, Titian must have felt betrayed by his inner circle, and especially by his friend Aretino, who had now become become the strongest public voice praising Tintoretto's talent. These sentiments are revealed in a letter that Aretino wrote to Agnolo Boccamazza, where he refers to Titian's anger. In it, Aretino reproaches his friend for not recognizing how much he had done to spread his fame in years past. The most interesting aspect of the letter, however, is that Aretino actually blames Tintoretto for the uncomfortable situation caused by his work although he does so in a very cryptic way. Enigmatically, he says that, and I quote, Tintoretto, out of wickedness or folly, broke his promise, end quote. It is not clear which this promise was, but I would like to propose a hypothesis. The pictorial decoration of the hall of the Capitolo Generale in the Scuola di San Rocco was one of the most prestigious commissions to be had in Venice, but bringing it to fruition was not an easy matter. Although the decoration project was approved in November of 1542, in 1547 it was still not assigned to any given painter, probably because its members could not agree on one. 
Titian most certainly must have aspired to this commission. He had experience in painting for the large scuole, the one of San Rocco, for which he was a member, the one of the Santa Maria de la Carita, for which he had made the monumental presentation of the Virgin between 1534 and 1538, and after 1548, he would also paint for the one of St. John the Evangelist. Given his record, it is quite likely that he had expressed among his circle an interest in the San Marco project, and that he would, should have felt betrayed when Tintoretto obtained the commission, precisely when he was away from the city. In fact, it is likely that Tintoretto took advantage of the contacts that he had developed in San Marco, since in 1547, his future father-in-law, Marco the Episcopi, and his friend, the writer Andrea Calmo, occupied important posts in the confraternity. That the way in which Tintoretto obtained the commission was probably not entirely correct is evident in the many complaints that, according with Ridolfi, it caused among the confraternity members. Returning to Aretino, Titian's extreme anger forced him to distance himself from Tintoretto. Tintoretto might have been the ascending star in the Venetian art scene, but Aretino's interest in the Italian-European courts made Titian an irreplaceable associate. Significantly, after the letter just mentioned, dated in January 1549, Tintoretto's name disappears from Aretino's correspondence. But all in all, something had changed in Venice. Titian had lost his uncontested aura. As much is suggested in a letter written by Aretino to Lodovico Dolce in 1554, in which he notes regarding Titian that, and I quote, soon his due honor will be restored through public consent, end close. As Roskill has pointed out, Aretino must have written this letter as a response to another by, another by Dolce, in which the latter saw sympathy and solidarity with Titian after some public incident in Venice. Paradoxically, if Titian's position in Venice was declining, it was to a certain extent because of his enormous success in the Habsburg court. Shortly after he had returned to Venice, between December 1548 and January 1549, he traveled to Milan to meet the then Prince Philip, future King Philip II of Spain. And between 1550 and 1551, he traveled again to meet the imperial family in Asburg. Each one of these trips was success and resulted in more commissions, but at the same time, all this kept him removed from the Venetian art scene. After his return from the second visit to Asburg, Titian never again left Venice for a prolonged period of time, and instead tried to recover the lost ground. The task was now difficult because Tintoretto had been very busy. The tremendous success of the miracle of the slave led a cascade of prestigious commissions from him in Venice as well as outside the city. Moreover, in 1551, he received the first official commissions, which would culminate in 1553 with the one for a monumental painting for the Sala del Mayor Consiglio in the Palazzo Ducale. There, Tintoretto's painting hung next to others by Titian. 
even though this was an important commission, the one that must have affected Titian most was Tintoretto's San Rocco healing the plague stricken of 1549 for the Church of San Rocco. The Church of San Rocco was associated to the Scuola of the same name. Antician was one of its members, which must have made him felt even more betrayed. In addition, Tizian knew that this commission paved in Toretto's way to a bigger prize, the decoration of the new Escuela di San Rocco. On this occasion, Tizian reacted, and in 1553, he offered to paint a large work for the whole of the albergo of the Escuela di San Rocco at no charge. He actually never delivered the work, but his initiative is probably also related to the fact that in that same year, Tintoretto's application for admission to the Scuola was rejected, and that, <laughs> and that decoration on it was postponed for another 11 years. This was not the only time that Titian got in the way of Tintoretto's career path. In 1556, he excluded him from the commission to decorate the ceiling of the reading room of the Marciana Library, for which he selected seven painters, most of them of inferior talent than Tintoretto. On the theoretical level, Titian reacted to the miracle of the slave by claiming that he had been the first to conjoin Florentine diseño with Venetian colorito. He did this in various ways. First, in a self-portrait engraved by Giovanni Brito in 1550 under his supervision. In it, we see Titian represented while drawing with a stylus instead of a brush in hand. Titian didn't need to, dem to demonstrate his mastery with color since it was undisputed, but he did have to underscore his talent as draftsman for he had been criticized for this in Rome. But above all, Titian encouraged the publication of a theoretical treatise that echoed his aspirations. In 1557, Lodovico Dolce published in Venice Loretino, a dialogue between Giovanni Francesco Fabrini, a Tuscan humanist, and Pietro Aretino, to whom the book takes its title. It has always been interpreted as the Venetian response to the first edition of Vasari's Lives of the Artists of 1550. In it, we find a defense of two interconnected ideas, the value of Colorito over Diseño and the superiority of Titian over Michelangelo. However, that Dolce priorized color over drawing does not mean that he did not appreciate the latter. On the contrary, his argument is that if Titian incarnates pictorial perfection, it is because his Diseño is as good as Michelangelo's and he handles color in a superior way. In other words, Titian was the first to achieve the perfect synthesis, but not only that, he was also the artist who did it best. Given this line of argument, I think it is plausible to analyze the Aretino in terms of the Venetian art scene itself. Laretino includes praises, only a few, and criticisms, many more, of Venetian painters. The painters criticized are cited by name only if they are already dead. Gentile and Giovanni Bellini, Giorgione, Lotto, etc. And not so if they are alive, although it is easy to identify them and significantly 
most are criticisms of Tintoretto. In his study of 1940, Coletti noted three veiled references to three works by Tintoretto in Laretino, all of them regarding lack of decorum in the inappropriate pose of a saint or in the inclusion of figures that should not appear in a given historical scene. None of these, ref none of these references are related to technical or aesthetic issues. However, I do believe that there are aesthetic criticisms of Tintoretto in the Aretino, criticisms which have gone largely unnoticed. In the coming minutes, I will make reference to some of these criticisms, and I will illustrate them with some of the works by Tintoretto we have already seen. As I noted before, Dolce presents Titian as the painter who first and best conjoined Diseño and Colorito. According to Dolce, chronologically he did so before anyone else, and he was better at it because he simply knew how to operate this naturally, with a sprezzatura, spontaneity, or easy, that made him the natural heir to Raphael. In opposition to Titian's virtues, Dolce alludes to the problem to, to the problems of other painters, that means Tintoretto. In these other works, the combination of diseño and, colorido is in, and colorito is imperfect, two-force and artificial. As we all know, the tour of force of diseño is knowing how to master for shortening, but Dolce indicates that it should not be too obvious, and neither should it overwhelm through reiteration. He warns against those who abuse it, and I quote, for shortenings should not be brought into use with any frequency. For the rarer they are, the greater the wonderment they occasion, end quote. For shortening shows the figure in movement and contributes decisively to the dynamism of a composition. But elsewhere, Dolce warns that there must not be excessive movement. This movement is again a very necessary element an agreeable one, and a source of astonishment. But these movements ought not to be continuous and common to all the figures. Instead, this element needs to be handled with moderation and diversity, and even omitted in occasion." End quote. The combination of color and line must also be natural and harmonious, which is why the most criticized element is the silhouetting of a figure's outlines or excessive use of saddle, things that were present in the miracle of the slave. Dolce's criticisms extend to other essential aspects of painting, such as the concept of varietas. For there are some people who, after painting a youth, put an old man or a young boy alongside him, and similarly put an old woman next to a young one. In the same way, too, they compose a face in profile, and then another in full view or three-quarter view. In some, Dolce proposed a pictorial sprezzatura, an art without excess, which hides or at least masks the artist's effort. And for him, its best representative is Titian rather than Tintoretto, whose art is full of virtuoso flourishes. In the end, Titian's direct response to Tintoretto's miracle of the slave took place on the artistic arena. His response reveals that, contrary to what was submitted by Dolce in Laretino, he too was greatly impacted by Tintoretto, 
Tintoretto's painting. This is evident in several of Titian's large works after 1548. Titian responded first to the challenge by painting the so-called Furias, a series of four works created after 1549 for Mary of Hungary. The drama of the stories represented in the Furias, the eternal punishments of Titius, Sisyphus, and Tantalus, provided Titian with an opportunity to compete with Michelangelo, Michelangelo in his own turf, because they dealt with the heroic male nude. But they also served to show, or pretend to show, that he could surpass Tintoretto in dramatic foreshortening. These same ideas seems to be part of a pair of ceiling paintings commissions which the historiography tends to date in the early 1550s. These are the ceilings for Santo Spirito in Isola and the Escuola of the Albergo of San John the de Evangelist. The central piece of the latter, a vision of San John in Padmonts, hangs here, very close to us, in the National Gallery of Art. The same can be said of other works by Titian from the early 1560s, such as the Transfiguration in the Church of San Salvatore in Venice. Overall, the outcome of these works is bittersweet. In all of them, Titian's effort to update his style is a bit too obvious and forced. More than monumentalize the composition, Titian enlarges the figures. The resulting compositions are rather noisy and a bit ambitious and awkward, lacking in that very sprezzatura, that casualness, which Dolce had so praised in the earlier Titian. I think Titian's only efficient answer to the miracle of the slave was his martyrdom of San Lawrence for the Church of Santa Maria dei Crocifere in Venice. Interestingly, he had begun this work in 1548, although it was not completed until 1557. In the martyrdom, Titian was not able to avoid Tintoretto's influence, most evident in the powerful anatomical foreshortenings and the unusual depth of the composition, which is highlighted by an imposing architectural frame set up in diagonal, an unusual strategy until this moment in Titian's narrative paintings. But Titian's success here is found in the way in which he assimilated these ingredients from Tintoretto and adapted them to his own visual language. In this respect, his best decision was to turn the scene into a nocturne. This obligated him to give color and light an even greater dramatic and compositional role than in earlier works, and ultimately it placed him on a new and charred ground superior to Tintoretto. The martyrdom of San Lawrence was a complete success, but also an exception, because overall Titian was unable to offer a consistent alternative to Tintoretto's monumental painting. It was not a matter of talent, but rather of age. Age had played in Titian's favor in the 1510s. It allowed him to break with Giovanni Bellini's compositional symmetry and endow his figures with movement that was unimaginable in his teacher's work. But now it was Titian, more than 60 years old, who could not compete with the pictorial illusionism of artists who were 25, 30, or even 40 years his younger, such as Paolo Veronese. And the fact is that the Tintoretto was not the only young artist breaking new stylistic ground. 
1551, Veronese came on the Venetian art scene with an altar in San Francesco de la Viña. In it, he played an intelligent tribute to Titian through clear allusions to the Madonna de Capesaro, de Capesaro in the Church of La Sunta. Titian must have noticed right away that the only way to stop Tintoretto was to promote a painter of great talent who was younger. And in fact, it is difficult to comprehend Veronese's meteoric career in Venice without Titian's protection. And since I have addressed Veronese, I invite the audience to visit San Sebastiano, the Church of San Sebastiano in Venice, the next time that you may be in the city. Few places illustrate so clearly the distance between Titian and the younger generation. The first thing one sees upon entering is the San Nicolas of Bari by Titian, a small altar painting of 1563 made for his, for his friend Niccolo Crasso with correction and harking back to models that were by then several decades old. It is also a work which is completely oblivious to the magnificent illusionism of Paolo Veronese in the ceiling paintings above, especially the triumph of Mordecai and the coronation of Esther, both from 1556. One does not need to be an specialist in Venetian painting to guess which of these works was made by the younger painter and which by the older one. Despite his efforts, Titian must have been aware of how difficult it was for him to compete with the younger painters in the field of the large-scale narrative painting. And this, in part, explains his pulling back from the Venetian art scene. In the third, quart in the, in the third quarter of the 16th century, he barely participated in the pictorial renewal of the major, major civic and religious buildings. Numerous commissions were to be had, and it was Tintoretto and Veronese who mostly fulfilled them. Moreover, Gentili has demonstrated that after 1555, Titian had a few patrons in Venice, and that the ones he did have formed part of the same circle as members of the Scuola of San Marco. Titian could allow himself this situation because his major sources of income came from outside Venice. Until his death in 1576, he remained the only Venetian painter with an international profile. Besides, while Titian might have seemed antiquated when dealing with large monumental commissions, his religious and mythological paintings of medium and small scale continue to be his strong point. In these works, the sensuality of his brush and the emotional intensity, be it of dramatic, devotional, or erotic nature, much excel both the brushes of Tintoretto and Veronese. From 1566 onward, Titian's physical decline led to an increasing absence from the Venetian scene. He barely painted after this date, and the few works that emerged from his workshop were replicas of earlier compositions made by assistants of limited talents. All in all, it seems that not even in his last years he was he able to forget the miracle of the slave. As Rodolfo Palucchini noted, in the last documented commission, Philip II offering the Infante Don Fernando to the heavens of 1573-75, the Nike who carries the palm harks back, although with less grace, 
to the St. Mark painted by Tintoretto 25 years earlier. But the important thing to remember is that until the very end of his life, Titian demonstrated a competitive edge and a capacity and willingness to experiment that is truly exceptional and has few parallels in the history of Western art. Rembrandt, Picasso, throughout his long career spanning seven decades, Titian's way of painting charged change as a result of his personal involvement, but also as a response to external influences. As is well known, his early works, his early work cannot be understood without considering Giovanni Bellini or Giorgione. The, histori the historiography has tended to, to uphold that after Bellini's death in 1516, Tizian was the sole king of the Venetian art scene and that he dominated it for the next 60 years, triumphing over those who dared to dispute his place. For example, Bordenone in the 1520s and 30s, and the Tuscans, Vasari, and Salviati in the, in the 1540s. Curiously, that same historiography tends to ignore the greatest challenge Tizian faced, the emergence from 1548 onward of a generation of painters of great talent, led by Tintoretto and shortly after Veronese. Their success is usually presented as if it were a parallel phenomenon without any impact on the great Titian. In this lecture, I have tried to show that we cannot write two parallel histories of the Venetian art scene. Titian was indeed receptive to the innovations, even though in the end he was unable to compete with the grand scale illusionistic painting of the younger talents. That doesn't mean that he was out of fashion in the same way that we understand Botticelli and Perugino to have been at a certain point of their careers. Rather, to the contrary, it may well be in part as a result of the difficulties of those years that Titian continued to experiment with color and materiality, gifting us with what today we call the late Titian, a way of conceiving painting that had deep and long-term consequences for the history of Western painting. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Arts podcast.